All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz, Ministry, Word, and Sacraments, and Inchiridion. We will be closing off today the section on the Office of the Holy Ministry, and then we'll be going into Part 2, which again is basically the remainder of the book, looking at Word and Sacraments. Again, with an eye toward not only how this teaches the laity from the scriptures, but also, and maybe more specifically, how this is meant to teach the clergy and keep them up to speed with their studies, with their own preaching and teaching. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So on page 37, we pivot from a discussion of God placing men into the office of the Holy Ministry immediately through his church, how then might a pastor be removed from office if that is warranted? And that is precisely the question introduced at point 31. But what if some minister is to be dismissed or removed from office? Chemnitz's answer. Just as God properly claims for himself the right to call, also immediately, and it is accordingly necessary for it to be done according to divine instruction, so also has God properly reserved to himself alone this power of removing someone from the ministry. So what we're going to see is these two things are parallel. It's God who does the calling. It's God who does the removing. He he does so in both cases, immediately through his church. Next paragraph. But since that dismissal takes place immediately, it is therefore necessary that it not take place except by instruction and divine direction. Once again, you see these parallel. No one should be called into the office apart from the divine instruction and direction, and same with removal from office. Chemnitz continues, Therefore, as long as God lets in the ministry his minister who teaches rightly and lives blamelessly, the church does not have the power without divine command to remove an unwanted man, namely, if he is a servant of God. Now, why would you want that to be the case? If a pastor is constantly under threat of being removed just because he becomes unpopular, because people don't like him, is he ever going to tell you the truth? (laughs) I mean, he may, but he's taking his career, his life, his family's life in his hands every time he does. And so this is the intention of God. This is the gift that God gives, that you may only depose a man in accord with speaking you know, in the Lord's stead here, with, in accord with my instructions. And thus God gives you a gift in a pastor, someone who will tell you the truth, whether it's popular or not. 
whether you're going to be happy with him or not. That's the gift that God gives in the office of the holy ministry. So, even if a man becomes unwanted, he cannot be removed unless in accord with the instruction and direction of the Lord. So, continuing on, Chemnitz writes, But when he does not build up the church by either doctrine or life, but rather destroys it, God himself removes him. And the quotation here is um, 1 Samuel 2.30. I'm not going to read all of these as we go along, but this is, if you remember, Eli, to whom God had promised um, the office of the priesthood along with his sons, but because of Eli's dereliction of duty, specifically toward his sons and his sons' abominable behavior in the office, the Lord removes them. So just briefly, here's a quotation. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. All right, so there's the quotation, and it is obviously uh, the Lord removing Eli and sons from office. Hosea 4.6 is also quoted, and um, you'll see this, this is, uh, let me read the quote first, then I'll explain. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. So here in Hosea, God has obviously lost his patience with the unfaithful priests and prophets. And he's stating that in no uncertain terms. So again, the principle in both of these being that God calls into office and God deposes from office. Make sense? All right. Continuing on with Chemnitz. And then the church not only properly can, but by all means should remove such a one from the ministry. For just as God calls ministers of the church, so he also removes them through legitimate means. But as the procedure of a call is to follow the instruction of the Lord of the harvest, so also is one to be removed from the ministry. The church must show that that also is done by the command and will of the Lord. Just as the call, so also the removal or deposition belongs not only to some one church or some one order of the church, but to the whole church, with that order preserved of which we spoke a little while ago. So this is this would be the church and the ministerium, and you can remember he brought up some other examples a little more time bound, but the sort of a patron or benefactor of a given congregation. Um, or also sometimes um, one who holds civil office but is a Christian in that congregation or locale. So those were other things that he had mentioned earlier in that section. In other words, it needs to be done 
in accord with the whole church, all its constituent components, not by any one of them. And thus also the call. So these things are completely parallel, the call and the deposition. Chemnitz continues, thus also the ancient church handled cases of deposition in the councils with diligent inquiry and careful judgment. So again, these things uh, are not to be done hastily. On this basis, one can also answer the other question about moving a minister from one church to another, about which there are helpful canons. And there he's citing a certain canon. Um, so can, can pastors be moved? Yes. The principle being um, it needs to be done in the same good order. Okay, let's pause there, see if you have any questions. Uh, again, probably probably not too many. Um, here, Chemnitz mentions, uh, and, and I'll use my own language, I'll kind of paraphrase him here and, and maybe use the modern Lutheran Church Missouri Synod language. You know, when it's clear and persistent false doctrine that's being taught, this is more than just an error or a quark, or, and even when there is false doctrine, um, there's a process to be engaged. Even if someone says something like, you know, Jesus sinned on the cross. Well, that's clearly an error. It says that Jesus is without sin in the Bible. Do you really believe that? Yeah, I hold to that. Okay, it doesn't, even in, even in such an egregious case, you can't immediately be like, okay, well, you're on your ear. There needs to be a due process. There needs to be an opportunity for the man to come to his senses and repent. We need to be patient with him the way we're patient with other sinners. Uh, but there needs to be uh, movement and direction. And it does need to happen um, relative to the speed in which we've been moving as a modern church. It needs to happen faster. <laughs> so we have a very bad habit. In many ways, the church has AIDS. It has an autoimmune disorder, and it's the immune system that isn't working. So we'll remove a man from office, but only after like 10 or 15 or 20 years of his false teaching and damaging the church. That is an error. That is mistaken. That is not in keeping with the Lord. So these things need to be done swiftly and decisively, and we've got many scriptures to muster to that effect. Uh, but we also need to give due process and time for a man to repent. The church fathers are very, very balanced on this, especially John Gerhard in the Lutheran tradition, inciting earlier church fathers, chief of whom would be Augustine, to this effect, that even, even in dealing with heretics, we need to act as Christians toward them, and only when they refuse to repent and when due process has been served um, do we then decisively remove them? Okay, and then, so we talked about false doctrine. Um, also, a uh, manifestly ungodly life, okay, such that the pastor brings scandal to himself or to the church and is therefore uh, not able to uh, minister properly to the people. He destroys a congregation by his uh, immorality in one way, shape, or form. He should be removed from office. And a third that um, Chemnitz doesn't mention is dereliction of duty. So again, this isn't like, well, you missed a meeting or you missed a shut-in call or 
you know, you took a couple extra sick days. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who either cannot or refuses to do his job as a pastor. Okay, so those are, those are the three uh, reasons for a pastor being removed from office. Any questions or comments on that question 31? Yes. Well, this is a little bit off the subject, but it has to do with uh, calling one church, Church A, calling a pastor from Church B. Uh, it's not a removal from office, but it, it is disruptive to an existing congregation. Mm-hmm. Is there something that Kemnitz says, or have, have we talked about this? Because I'd like to hear your views on that as the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've put ourselves into a really sticky situation in regard to that, and I sympathize all the way around. I answered this question, I think, for some of the folks after class last, so I'm going to try to move efficiently through the answer. It's a great question. It's worth it for the people online, especially. I just hope to not put you to sleep if you were here for my answer earlier. So it's hard for us to even imagine a church that's so united in doctrine and practice that the ministers truly are interchangeable. But that would be the ideal, that would be the goal. And then calling an, whether you call another whether a congregation calls some other congregation's pastor or whatever, already we're all on the same team. There's no there's no offense taken or given. We're all on the same team. Um, if, if it would be good for him to go and serve you, great. If he wants to stay and serve us, great. The Lord will send us some other man who, albeit is different, with different uh, strengths and weaknesses, but he's going to fulfill the office faithfully, and there's not going to be a major change of course for our congregation. And so in a time of greater unity, this is really not a scandalous thing at all. Now, as goes with that time of greater unity, so also a time of greater churchmanship. And so how this used to run in our circles is a pastor would not be available for a call unless he contacted the district office, the office of the president of the district under which he serves, and says, you know, I would be open to taking a call. And a man might have any variety of reasons for doing that. Even if he's at a part like a big bustling church that requires, and he's getting older and can't keep up with it anymore, he might say, I'm going to put my name on a call list. Okay, then if a congregation becomes vacant, let's say the pastor retires or dies, they would get in touch with the district and say, who's available to take a call? And then they would do their analysis that way. Does that make sense? That's where our whole system comes from, and it's completely ecclesiastical and wonderful. What we've seen now, largely due to, um, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg, but I think it's largely causal, and that is this press toward contemporary worship is a breach of the unity and fellowship and doctrine and practice that we all had, and it's done for really selfish motivation. We're going to do this, and we're going to grow. And that creates a competition, and it creates a consumerism that runs through, and then it creates a distrust And so broken is this idea that you could just, as a vacant congregation, call up the district president and say, hey, who's on the list? Whoever you got will take them. Because you don't know if this guy's going to come in and bring a rock and roll service in, you know. 
uh, or, or utterly change everything. And then, of course, that creates people who swing the other way. So, uh, like, you know, as the pendulum swings back and forth, and you might get somebody who presses too hard in the other direction. And, you know, your congregation isn't ready to, to have all the liturgical changes that he wants to have, um, even if those are in the other direction. And so it creates an, an environment where there's a lot of distrust and a lot of uncertainty, and that's where we find ourselves today. And then what that really amounts to is then a congregation, and this is the way it's just being handled right now, if a congregation goes vacant and there's a, there's a pastor at another congregation that um, has been suggested to that congregation's call committee, uh, the call committee will often reach out to him and say, are you open to taking a call or not? And that puts a pastor in a terrible situation because... <sighs> On the one hand, you might say, no, I don't want to leave the church I'm in. But are you going to close yourself off to a divine call, to the calling of God immediately through? So my answer is to, the, with, to these congregations that contact me is typically, um, I am always open to a divine call from the Lord. How could I not be? <laughs> that would be rather foolish. <laughs> uh, but the circumstances are such in the congregation I'm presently serving that it would be very difficult for me to move congregations or I would have a very hard time finding a place where, you know, trying to be a steward of myself um, where I would be better apt to serve. And usually that's enough to kind of put them off a little bit, right? But from this whole thing have, have developed, a pro, you know, interviews which are kind of neutral to bad, depending upon how they're handled. If they're handled like business interviews, like somebody trying to get a job, they're bad. And where people have wanted to quote-unquote interview me, I've said right off the bat, I'm not doing this like this is a job interview. I'm not trying to get the job. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to answer your questions forthrightly. And that's it. I'm not here to, you know, God's given us so much more than this kind of business relationship. And then I think it's even manifested in, in practices that are really kind of aberrant, although I think, I mean, they're good intended, they're just, they're just aberrant, and that's to, you know, you might have a guy come test out his preaching at a congregation, and everybody's evaluating him, and that's just bad, and even if they like him, he gets put off on the wrong foot. It's, it's all performance-based rather than a divine call and that sort of long-term faithfulness. Uh, that a congregation has toward the pastor and the pastor toward the congregation, both in love f for God. So that creates the mess we're in right now and the sense that we have when a congregation calls our pastor that they're poaching him. Um, now, I think we can be mature enough to, to see all the mess we're in and still say, hey, they're on our side. They're not doing this as a matter of hostility. They're not really trying to poach our pastor. They're looking for a pastor just like we want a pastor, and we want, you know, both congregations want a faithful pastor. And, you know, so I think we can mitigate that just even in our own minds, even though systemically we've got a lot of brokenness and damage in our, in our church body right now. Does that answer your question best as I can? Absolutely. Okay, good. Yeah, I will hand up here then. Uh, when a pastor is in, you know, his current uh, 
church and he receive a call, how can that pastor determine that what is the divine call and which what is not? Yeah, it's a great question. So the answer there is, and by the way, we've really been kind of messed up in our thinking on this point too in the LCMS, at least for some decades. But very clearly what, you, what the pastor has is two divine calls. God's saying, I'm pleased to have you serve in this place, and I'm pleased to have you serve in that place. Okay? The choice is up to you. And then what the pastor does is he considers a stewardship of his, uh, of his person. These are, these are um, you know, I think, so to break it down maybe just a little bit more narrow, you try to get a sense for, okay, what is the calling church like? What are the problems that they're facing? And then you look objectively, you try to zoom out on the parish you're serving, and you try to say, based on the skill set that God has given me and everything from like energy and time and family kind of factors into that, because if the family's miserable, you're going to not be very effective. And so that's a complicated assessment, but it's one that's very simple in principle, and that's you're trying to ask the question of stewardship. How could I be a better, you know, what, what decision would be best stewardship of my person and then make your decision on that basis. Because if you make the decision on the basis of, oh, it's going to go better for me to stay here, or it's going to go better for me to leave, uh, God has a wild sense of humor about that. <laughs> about, this, about as soon as you say, oh, this is going to be the better way, um, better meaning more comfortable or easier, God does a little rug pull on that one just to remind you that you're a minister. You're not serving for your pleasure. So it is a question of stewardship, and then you make your decision as a pastor based on this overarching stewardship. And in many cases, um, no, I think in all the cases, that's really what it is. A man, I think, could, could easily choose, like, well, this is an easier and less demanding call. I'm going to do that because I'm tired and I'm old. Uh, or someone could say, uh, hey, I'm an associate pastor here. I feel like a... I feel like a racehorse, you know, at the gate, and I haven't been let out yet. This congregation is calling me as a sole pastor. Uh, it's time to time to go, time to run, and so they want to go to that. And so this, but these are stewardship types of things. What a pastor is not doing, definitively, and this is what we've got messed up, is trying to get his spiritual antennae up and discern which one is actually the will of the Lord. And that's just rubbish, and it's terrible. And it gives our people a completely false impression about how God works and how to make decisions in their own lives. And so when when, um, pastors say these things of like, well, I'm going to pray about it and see what God has in mind for me. God going to write you an email? Eh, He's got no patience for this. Um, God's already written you the email. You may serve here or you may serve here. (laughs) There's no more answer you're going to get from God. Um, The rest is a matter of your stewardship. And then then the pastor in his heart just simply says, well, whether I go or stay, I'm entrusting the people that are going to feel rejected and the people who are going to be elated, I'm entrusting them to the Lord. And the Lord's going to govern and guide them. And I'm making the decision based on stewardship. And whether it goes good or ill, 
in quotations, good or ill, for me, if I take it or if I don't take it, I'm going to entrust myself to the Lord, and I'm not going to second-guess that decision because the Lord has given me either path. He's not playing games, and he's going to have exactly what he wants to have happen to me and to the congregations uh, through that process. So, does that help to answer? Uh, you know, I know, I know. Right. Is a divine calling? Yeah, I understand all those human emotions. I and I feel them acutely myself. And of course, I'm a pastor's kid, so um, I was with my dad as he took a couple different calls in his ministry and. Um, I th- those are always feelings that emerge. Uh, the the deeper the de- deeper truths sort of abide over and against and despite our feelings, and um, those deeper truths do have you know to do with the way God governs His church and the sorts of the sorts of things that He might have in mind that are different than what we might have in mind. And I know too. Um, you know, there, there are many cases where a pastor leaves and it's very traumatic for the church, but then five, ten years later, the church is in a better place than it was. And uh, no offense to the pastor, but they've already kind of forgotten him. And, you know, that's, that's good. Uh, if, we get, if we get too connected to a specific pastor, we run the risk of uh, falling into a cult-like behavior, and if, a, and if a pastor starts to see himself as this people can't live without me, he starts falling into a cult leader-like way of thinking. And so there's this beautiful thing God gives us in the office of the ministry, where we can be very, very attached um, pastor and people one to another, and yet at the end of the day, it's still an office, and someone else can fulfill that office, and it'll be okay. You'll be okay, I'll be okay, well, I'll be okay. It's In fact, it's the Lord's wisdom that it that this be the case. And so that's what I mean by there's this kind of deeper structure that holds us all together despite whatever feelings we might feel. As I saw my dad uh, leave congregations, I mean, there were tearful uh, events, but uh, opportunities in which people and pastor can have great faith in what the Lord holds in store. So just some things to, to consider in those, yeah, in those circumstances. Okay, shall we move on? The office of a minister of the church, page 38. We have two questions under this heading. The first, should one who has been legitimately called be concerned only about ecclesiastical returns? Answer, Christ declares that laborers have wages coming. There's some citations given from Matthew and Luke. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.14, God has so ordained that they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But this should not be the chief concern of the ministry. And Ezekiel 34 here is a recounting of the unfaithful shepherds, if you remember this from Ezekiel. Um, they basically serve only for themselves. They, instead of shepherding the sheep, they devour the sheep. 
Therefore, Scripture calls pastors and teachers ministers, stewards, and laborers of God, but Scripture calls their ministry service, labor, and work. Okay, so, yeah, should a pastor um, receive his living from preaching the gospel? Yes, God has ordained it. That The unfortunate reality is in some cases you have to have worker priests of necessity. And we have some biblical examples of that, but we don't have biblical mandate toward that. Very frequently you'll get this idea, usually from church bureaucrats, that uh, what we really need is, is everyone to be worker priests, all pastors to be worker priests. And what this really is in hiding is a rejection of God's command that a pastor should gain his living from the gospel. Now, the next paragraph we're going to go into is why, what's the rationale, and that is because if I'm spending uh, eight hours a day at Walmart or ten hours a day as an accountant, how much time do you think I'm going to have to devote myself to God's word and to the spiritual care of the members of the body of Christ? It's simply a matter of time and energy, and that's not what God has in mind. God doesn't have in mind part-time pastors. That makes sense. So that's the biblical principle laid out here in question 32. And of course, um, pastors shouldn't get into the office to enrich themselves. I don't. Maybe that's a problem of a bygone day. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know how many Lutheran pastors these days are, um, you know, really struggling to to manage their wealth. <laughs> there are, of course, here in America. Uh, Many entrepreneurial pastors, shall we say, that rake in millions of dollars by bilking people out of it, and I would not give anything in the world to be in their position, because it's about to get real hot for them. Okay, so let's get into the rationale of this biblical principle in question 33. What then is the office or work of the ministry of the church? Sirach, now this is quoting from an apocryphal text, 38, 25 through 26 says, The wisdom of a scribe, namely for the kingdom of heaven. So what's, what Chemnitz is doing is saying, let the reader understand here, pastor. The wisdom of a scribe requires opportunity for leisure. This, by the way, is broader than a Christian thought. This is even just kind of a pagan thought that anybody who's actually thinking deeply has to have time and space to think deeply. Self-evident, isn't it? Yeah. And so the same is true for the pastoral office. Continues, and it is necessary for him to be free from other matters who wants either to obtain that wisdom for himself or impart it to others. For how can he deal with wisdom who must hold the plow and drive oxen, etc.? So all of this a quote from Sirach. It's one of the reasons why... um, We tend to call, even though I slip and don't say this all the time, but we tend to call the pastor's room at the church not an office, but a study. Because it's not an office where business is happening, where he's constantly busy, but a study where he needs peace and quiet to meditate on the Word of God, to let that Word dwell in him richly, because the only thing he's going to have to give you is that which he himself has received. Yeah. 
Okay. So, continuing on with Chemnitz, the office of a minister of the church, therefore, is that he diligently study the Holy Scriptures and give himself to reading them. Moreover, that he labor in the word and doctrine. I mean, again, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here at Faith, but for the sake of the broader audience that might hear this, you want your pastor to read. <laughs> if you come into your pastor's study and he's reading, don't think to yourself like an American, oh, what's this slacker doing? He's not doing anything. He needs to get up and produce something. Why isn't he hammering away on his laptop? And Why, don't, why isn't the printer buzzing? Uh, that's not what you want. You want your pastor to study, and we all need to be encouraged toward this too because of the weakness of our flesh. And because studying isn't hard, I mean, isn't easy, um, nor is thinking deeply about anything easy. <clears throat> okay, so again, you want him to labor in the word and doctrine, and indeed that's from 1 Timothy 5.17, so this is a divine command for the pastor. Chemnitz continues that he feed the flock of Christ and the church of God. A couple of references given. That is, he is to serve the church with the preaching of the word and administer and administration of the sacraments and the use of the keys. And that harkens back to the beginning of this chapter where Chemnitz introduces this threefold role of the office of the holy ministry. Word, sacraments, and keys. And so that's really what, what a pastor is called to do in the proper sense. Now, a pastor can do a lot of other things. He can move tables. He can screw in light bulbs. He can lead the council in meeting. He can um, figure out what, what color everybody wants the carpet to be. Uh, the pastor does a lot. And in fact, it's kind of some of the joy of the pastoral office because if I want to play plumber today, I can go find something leaking, I guarantee it, and fix it. Um, if I, if I want to play scholar, I can go digging around in the New Testament dictionary of Greek theological terms, and, uh, and it'll be profitable. So you've got this whole wide spread of things that you can do. If I want to go have uh, converse with people, there's plenty of people I can have converse with. If I want to seek, seek out somebody who's hurting, there's somebody who's hurting always. In fact, everybody's hurting in one way, shape, or form. That's the secret. Uh, there's almost infinite things you can do. There's just not enough time and not enough energy. But the focal point of the pastoral office, what the work of the office is proper, and we pastors and we Christians always have to be reminded of this, is word, sacrament, and keys. That's really what a pastor should be up to. So if the pastor's doing other stuff than that, you might have to remind him, and I know as a pastor I sometimes have to remind myself, hey, this is actually what you're called to do. Make sense? Okay, so just continuing then with Chemnitz, he quotes Origen. I didn't write down his dates. I think he's a 4th century guy, maybe a 3rd century guy. If someone wants to pull that up and and correct me if I'm off by a lot, that'd be great. Um, Origen aptly writes on, yeah, and this is some reference to one of his works that's not familiar to me. Anyway, Origen writes, these two are works of a priest. First, that he learn of God by reading the Holy Scriptures, 
and frequent meditation, and that he teach the people, but that he teach the things that he himself has learned from God. There is also another work which Moses does. He does not go to war, but prays for the people. So if I'm reading Origen correctly, and I think there might be some, I mean, certainly a complicated translation, I think the key first is learning from God his word, and the second is praying. And you kind of see the pastor in between God and the people speaking from God to the people, what the pastor himself has learned, and then turning with the people and on behalf of the people and making requests known to God. So word and prayer, they're added. And that's a theme we've seen all throughout uh, in Chemnitz's first part, um, the importance of prayer on the part of pastors and laity, uh, often much neglected because prayer is hard. But that's what we're called to, and it has great benefit. All right, so again then, that serves, this latter question serves a pastor. You want your pastor to be dedicated, and I mean, more importantly, God wants him to be dedicated to the diligent study of the word and the meditation upon it so that he actually has something to give you on Sunday. And that then is ultimately the rationale for question 32, whether one should gain his living by by preaching the gospel. And again, God just flatly says so, but the rationale is you don't want a part-time pastor. You don't want a guy who's just studying a few hours at the end of his day job and then giving that to you on Sunday. His preaching is going to be shallow. His teaching is going to be shallow. You're going to know it right away. Okay, so that concludes this section. I see a hand up front, and yeah, I'll ask more broadly if there's any other questions or comments um, on the ministry, on anything we've talked about, any practical questions. I'm happy to entertain whatever's on your mind. And then we're going to pivot hard into part two, which is on the word and the sacraments. You just said that you don't want it. we don't want a part-time pastor. But what happened if the congregation cannot support the pastor? He has to go out and <clears throat> work separately. Mm-hmm. And this happens from time to time. I just think that it's much more rare that that's actually a necessity than we often think. Because frequently, all it would take for a pastor, I I mean, this is frequently the case, sad to say, that there are two or three or four congregations in a given geography that if they would just join together in support of a pastor, they'd all have a pastor. Uh, Sometimes it would be even better if they would collectively sell their properties, pool into one of the properties, or buy a new property, whatever, and join together as a church. But there's a lot of pride and a lot of arrogance and a lot of sense of, well, I'm not going to change church and I'm not going to change my routine and I'm not going to mess, I'm going to go to my service at my church and sit in my pew and I don't care if there's four people there and I don't care if we can't afford a pastor. Um, We'll just take this guy who's going to work full time and then come in. It's just all about me and my comfort. And there is a lot of that out there, unfortunately. Um, The other thing we've lost is the priority of having a pastor. And again, I'm not speaking of us here at Faith, of course, but I'm just speaking generally. 
And so, uh, so a lot of this is, hey, we won't pay for a pastor um, because we don't value it, so we won't sacrificially give. And then frequently what happens is this. Isn't there a retired pastor somewhere around here? Maybe 30 miles away. Let's just give him his gas money and a couple hundred bucks. He'll be tickled as pink, you know, he'll be tickled as can be to drive in and preach for us on Sundays, and we'll be tickled as can be to have him. We're getting a pastor on the cheap. And uh, so a lot of mammon is driving uh, these conversations. Now, if a congregation were truly out in the boonies and had nothing else, and a man wanted to come and be a worker priest in that area, and they were, and the church was. Um, fully on board, and he was fully on board, and the goal was ultimately to build the church to the point where he didn't have to work, I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be good and God-pleasing, and that is the, often the case um, in those rural or isolated areas. But so much of this that we face in the church today really has to do with a kind of hardness of heart and a prioritization of mammon over and against the office. Yeah, yeah I have a question. You said the focus... Um, service type of pastor should be word, sacraments, and keys. I know what word and sacrament is, but what, 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 what do you mean by keys? Yeah, so the office of the keys, which of course is given to the whole church, and this has, a, this has everything to do with maybe at the finest point, confession and absolution. But at the widest point, um, what we would call church discipline, but just don't think of that as, as strictly speaking Matthew 18 or the um, particulars of the bylaws or whatever the case may be. Think of that more broadly, that um, he is to uh, pursue the lost sheep and correct the erring and um, strengthen and encourage those who are strong and doing well. And so he's he's has um, a kind of oversight over the whole flock. That's really what's meant by the keys. And then his utilization of law and gospel um, church discipline and praise, let's say, uh, to sort of uh, oversee the flock of God. That's really what's meant here by Kemp's when he refers to the keys. All the way in the back. Sorry, you're getting your exercise today. Uh, About the issue of music and uh, the liturgy, it seems that in a synod, where the idea of everyone walking together, without there being some specific requirements for those things, um, that it, naturally there would be uh, interpretation. So do you, can you envision, a, um, and therefore these issues are like, oh no, I don't want to lose my pastor because... I like the music and the liturgy that I have. And those things are important, I think, um, clearly to everyone. seems maybe some don't care, but it seems like most do. Anyway, um, can you imagine a time where there would be uh, some sort of a, something in, like the Book of Con- I don't know, something that would stipulate... Um, some kind of standard or requirements um, in those two areas. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of comments I can offer to that effect. Um, the church in America is always running parallel with or one step behind the politics of America. 
What we need in our country politically is not a new constitution. We just need to be faithful to the one we've got. And there's a parallel to that that really, properly speaking, we don't need a new document to add to the Book of Concord. We just need to be faithful to the Book of Concord. There's enough in there that talks about unity in doctrine and practice, uniformity in worship. There's enough there that we don't need to invent something new. So that would be the first comment. We just need to, if there were to be a new, let's say there would be a new synod formed of all like-minded confessional peoples in the LCMS, we would not need, we might choose to have, but we would not of necessity need any new document. We just say we all believe this and we're going to live by it. Um, so that would be the first thing. Uh, this, the second comment, of course, is that if you... Okay, well, no. The second comment would be Martin Chemnitz himself, and you can find this in a book recently published by CPH, uh, translated and published, called Church Orders. But Chemnitz himself, of course, who's instrumental in penning uh, the latter documents of the Book of Concord, puts forth a prescription for the churches in a given locale and says, this is what you're going to do. This is what the worship's going to look like. There's not going to be any derivation on this. This is the liturgy we all use. It would be analogous if somebody said, if we had a district president say, in this district, you're going to use the hymnal. That's it. You're going to use the hymnal. Imagine that. Okay? Um, you're not going to go outside the hymnal. And you, know, you can hear already like the whatabouts. What about the pre-service music or the post-service music? Or, hey, we can make some exceptions there. Um, but in terms of the service proper, you're not going to go outside the hymnal. You can, I can already hear the squeals and the, oh, that's oppressive, that's terrible. Uh, but that, that's unity. And that ultimately is, you know, we've kind of got these things and we're like, why do we have them? But that's why we have a church publishing house. <laughs> that's why the publishing house puts forward a hymnal. It's not to be an option on the table. You could just as easily go over to Zondervan and get whatever you know the big big box church is offering or doing, and just you know, hey, this is one more product for you to choose. Which is unfortunately the confusion our congregations are in this day and age. It's here's our synod. Here's what it means to walk together. Here's our publishing house. Here's our hymnal. Everybody should be within the hymnal. And arguably, the hymnal itself, as we presently have it, is too wide. I mean, we have five different settings for you to choose in. You can't, you know, you can't find one you like? <laughs> Do you need seven? <laughs> no. Once upon a time, we all had the Lutheran hymnal, TLH, and we had one setting, which is now our setting three. So, okay, now with all that being said, I think, I think really because we're in this contentious, combative place, we're having to take the approach that I've, I've just demonstrated. But imagine a church where the pastors and the people are all in doctrinal harmony and unity. You don't have to suspect everyone and fight everyone and dictate everything. You can trust. And in that trust, you could say, I don't care if you use a guitar. I don't care if you use um, this hymn or that, if you pull some hymn out of the hymnal that that dates back to the 16th century or the 4th century or this century. As long as we're all doctrinally on the same page, so much of this would go away. And what has really happened in our midst, if we just speak bluntly about it, a huge portion of our congregations have said, we want to worship like evangelical churches. 
We see evangelical churches growing, and we want that kind of growth, and we're going to worship. We're going to do what they're doing in order to get that growth. That's just a crass departure, and it's very different from somebody saying, hey, we're all on the same page. Does anybody have a problem if I use a guitar, or if I use a flute, or if I use some other instrument? Nobody cares about that, and that's the Book of Concord. Nobody, nobody, if we're all on the same page, nobody cares. But that's not the state in which we find ourselves in the LCMS. We're in a state where many congregations have not just said, hey, can we use a guitar? They're saying, hey, look at those guys who we have no doctrinal fellowship with. Let's look exactly like them. And that's not permitted. That's a, that's a division. That's divisive. It's not in keeping with love. And if you're interested in hearing this, or reading this rather directly from the pen of Luther, uh, he writes a letter to the Livonians. It's in um, volume 53 of his American edition. And he's got this beautiful distinction. He says, when we think of worship in terms of the verticality of it, God has left us free. He's given us the word and the sacraments, and the expression of that is free. We could choose to have a service of the word, choose to have a service of the sacrament, choose to alter the components. We're free. There's no law, no divine law put upon us. But when we consider then the horizontal dynamic of our brothers and sisters in Christ, in love, we set aside this freedom and unite with one another and bind ourselves together in one unity, in one form of worship. So that's Luther's take. So then what is it if, if half of us say, I want to go worship like a Baptist? And the rest of us are like, ah, yeah, no, that's divisive. That's an act of lovelessness. And that's really what we're up against, is we've got, we've got a good number of our churches and pastors just acting loveless. And we're, unfortunately, as a church body, reaping what they've sown in the disunity and all the complications and consumerism and contentions and competition uh, that we find in the church today. Yeah, so hopefully, I mean, long-winded answer to your question, but yes, historically these things can be mandated and maybe should be mandated, especially where there's all kinds of questions as to how we should do this. I can envision a time where a church body would be so healthy that you wouldn't need it. And in fact, um, you could really just trust everyone to do what's right. Yeah, We're just not in that set of circumstances. Okay, any other questions or comments on the office of the ministry? Um, I'm seeing that we have like four minutes left. Let me just make one summary statement and then I'll just close it, close it up. But as we're looking at the office of the ministry, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees here. And that's why I began the way I'll end. And that's with a reminder of the theology of the Augsburg Confession, which really articulates the biblical doctrine of the pastoral office, I think better than anything else I've read. And that is that God has in mind the salvation of the world through the atoning death of Christ. That's what God has in mind. That's what he's done in and through Christ. And that salvation is through Christ and entirely apart from our works or our deciding or any contribution of ours. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But that free gospel to be justified and stand before God and we face him 
and to be received by him without condemnation, by pure grace, just simply because we've believed in who he is and what he's said, and entirely apart from our works or whether we earned it or merited or deserved it, just this gracious gift of God. This wonderful gospel, God wants to go out into the world. And he wants his Christians who will hear this gospel and believe it to be nurtured in his word and sacraments, to be defended against the devil and to grow in their own faith and understanding, their own hope, their own love, and to develop into mature Christians being conformed into the image of Christ. These are the things that God has in mind. They're central. They're his project that he's doing. So he creates and institutes this office by which this this can occur and can be guaranteed. And that's his profound gift that he gives to us in the office. And then he calls specific individuals into that office to call specific people in specific congregations. And it's beautiful and wonderful. But that's why then we've got these we need to study this office and how does it work and um, what ways could it be abused or misunderstood. And we want to avoid those things because this is a this is a delivery system through which God delivers his gifts to his people and then thus also to the whole world. So that's the blessing of studying this. And uh, I think we should do so more frequently because it really does show the goodness of our God. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. Any other questions or comments on the Office of the Ministry? So next week then, let's go into part two, the Word and the Sacraments. And I think you're going to like this, because even if you flip ahead, this isn't going to be sort of the typical canned stuff you might be accustomed to. We're going to delve into the Scriptures, and in what sense are they trustworthy? Um, What exactly are the Scriptures? How do they serve as a canon? Um, What are the various abuses in regard to departing from the scriptures or adding to them, subtracting from them? And then what is at the heart and center of the scriptural message? And so all of that's going to be really hard hitting. We're going to get into the different books of the Bible and how the Bible's organized. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to get into what God means and intends for his church in giving us such a rich and dynamic collection of scriptures. Um, and then we're going to go into uh, exactly what it is that Christ continues to do in his midst, uh, in our midst, through his word. We'll get opportunity to talk about law and gospel and that distinction, the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of a Christian. We're going to hit all these things. And then we're going to get in, as soon as you've introduced the law, you've introduced sin. And as we progress along through that, we're going to be looking at original sin, actual sin, distinctions of sin. And we'll be talking about contrition and repentance and, of course, the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ and all those gifts and blessings that come to us. So I think it's going to be, in other words, just an incredible study, and I'm really looking forward to it. All right, the Lord be with you.